Okay, you can turn your Bible to Ecclesiastes. We'll look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page. So a lot of people have to deal with um, uh, anxiety and uh, depression and stress on uh, sort of a regular basis in daily life, uh, or at least every once in a while. Uh, it becomes a, a serious issue for a lot of us. Uh, sometimes, sometimes in seasons when we're really reflecting on life itself, reflecting on the nature of life, reflecting on my life, our life, uh, we can experience these things, these anxiety and uh, depression and stress kind of things, uh, just amplified to, to a deep, consuming despair. Uh, it's like anxiety and depression on steroids, right? People call it an existential crisis. It's got a name. Uh, it's when you feel deeply unsettled by fundamental questions about your own existence, about your own life. So let me read what Wikipedia says about um, it. Wikipedia is often helpful just for definitions of things. Existential crisis, also known as existential dread, are moments when individuals question whether their lives have meaning, purpose, or value, and are negatively impacted by the contemplation. It may be commonly but not necessarily tied to depression or inevitably negative speculations on purpose in life. For example, if one day I will be forgotten, what is the point of all my work? The issue, Wikipedia continues, the issue of the meaning and purpose of human existence is a major focus of philosophy. We've talked about philosophy um, a couple weeks ago when uh, we looked at Solomon's initial explorations of that idea, but this basically sounds like a quote from Ecclesiastes, right? If one day I'll be forgotten, then what's the point of it all? Does anything really matter? Ecclesiastes takes a hard look at life in this world, life under the sun, and he is negatively impacted by the contemplation, as Wikipedia puts it, right? Uh, He's having an existential crisis, If existential dread is something that you've struggled with, or if it's something that you're struggling with right now, uh, that we're just going to say that Jesus is the only one who can help you with that. And if you've never had an existential crisis, maybe you should try it. (laughs) Uh, It seems to be the kind of place that Jesus likes to meet people. (laughs) And and when he meets us there, it changes everything for us. Uh, So we'll talk about that this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, your word can be a surprising help to so many of us. We pray that you would give us your help now, Uh, maybe not the help we thought we wanted, but the help we need. We pray for your spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 2, uh, verses 12 through 17, with some modifications to the ESV. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vapor. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no eternal remembrance. 
seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was evil to me. For all is vapor and herding wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Solomon's having uh, the midlife crisis to end all midlife crises. Uh, literally, that's what it's supposed to be. That's what his stated purpose is in Ecclesiastes. He's going through this experience of exploring the world for all it has to offer in terms of ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction. And he's doing it for the sake of those who come after him, who uh, likely won't be able to make such thorough explorations themselves. Right? So it's like a wealthy adventurer who can afford to build this fantastic submarine that no one else can afford to build, who explores the depths of the ocean where no one else can afford to go. He makes a documentary about it so that others can see what is uniquely privileged, uh, what he is uniquely privileged to see. Right? So Solomon has resources of wealth and wisdom that are well beyond the grasp of most people. So when Solomon has his midlife crisis, so to speak, Uh, and asks his deep questions, it's meant to be a resource for us in in the times of our similar struggles, right? So he says in verse 12, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. So who could possibly add anything substantial to his search? No one. Uh, Trumper Longman has a commentary on this. He says that Solomon was known as the wisest and richest man to to have ever lived. If he could not find meaning in the things of the world, who could? Who could? Uh, It really doesn't matter who you are, what resources of uh, wealth and wisdom you might have. Solomon is able to say, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and uh, this is meant to be the definitive statement on the matters that he explores, that he goes ahead of us to explore. And here in our passage, he's reporting on whether it really makes any fundamental difference whether someone's wise or foolish. Um. So he, like we said, he's already taken one look at wisdom, which we talked about in terms of philosophy here. I think he's talking about things like practical wisdom, uh, smart living, uh, common sense type stuff uh, versus, on the other hand, being an unreflective person who's bumbling through this life. Uh, So a lot of people in this room are really smart. Um, You do well in life in large part because you're thoughtful. You think ahead. And you anticipate, uh, you make good plans. You see value in education, you see value in critical thinking and in abstract thinking. You're a lifelong learner, you love reading, you love staying on top of things, on top of the news. Um, You understand how things work in society, or how things work in business, or how things work in politics. And you know how to navigate those arenas well, well enough. You save your money. You have a retirement plan because that's smart. You value intelligence in a spouse where you hope to see it in your children. You look to reward it and to foster their growth and understanding and intelligence. Maybe you even you really rely on uh, these, uh, your ability to understand things, your capacity to understand things. Maybe you think your ability to think well Your ability to think well gives you your best shot at having a good life. Your ability to think well, think on your feet, make good plans. 
is, uh, gives you your best shot at making a, a name for yourself. Maybe your wisdom is a big part of how you think of yourself. Maybe your wisdom, your intelligence is a big part of uh, your identity. Right? Uh, maybe you're proud of your common sense and you disparage those who seem to have no common sense. Uh, maybe you compare your intelligence to others and you compare yourself rather favorably to others. Maybe you think you're the smartest person in this room. One of you might be right. There is more gain in wisdom than in folly, he says. As there's more gain in light than in darkness. Ecclesiastes is saying, sure, on one level it's obvious. It's better to be wise than to be a fool. You'll have a better life. Yeah. Verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. It's better to to see the way things are than to just be blind, bumbling around. And yet, I I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Does it really make any fundamental difference whether someone is wise or whether they're foolish? Does it really make any fundamental difference whether someone goes to college or drops out of high school? Does it make any fundamental difference whether someone has an answer for everything or whether they have a mental disability? Does it make any difference whether someone can win every debate or has dementia and can't remember their own family's names? No, it doesn't. Because no amount of conventional wisdom or smart living or common sense is going to save anyone from dying in the end. It doesn't matter how piercing your intellect is, how perfect your memory is, how crafty and clever you are, or how crafty and clever you think you are. You can't cheat death. Some translators put it, the same fate overtakes us all. And this is where Solomon's crisis really hits, because he can't just think in abstractions about other people anymore, He says in verse 15, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vapor. There's nothing here. It's not, yeah, all people are going to die. We know the statistics. No, it's, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. One day I'll have eaten my last meal. One day I will have taken my last breath. And my heart will have beaten its last time. What good is wisdom going to do me then? Smart living. Common sense. What good is it going to do me? In his crisis, the question becomes personal for Solomon, and it has to become personal for us. It's not just an academic question. Why do you value and pursue intelligence? Solomon Asks, why then have I been so very wise? Why do you pursue intelligence and education and critical thinking and foresight and common sense? Why do you think those things are good? You want to cultivate those things in yourself or in uh, your children. What good does any of this do you if the same fate overtakes both the wise and the fool, overtakes all of us? Being wise can't help you with the problem of your mortality. And here's the problem of our mortality as Ecclesiastes sees it here. In verse 16, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no eternal remembrance. 
the ESV says uh, enduring remembrance. The word literally is eternal. Uh, so let's just translate it that way. There's no eternal remembrance or eternal memorial. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So the problem of our mortality is this. Death indiscriminately wipes you out, not only of existence, it wipes you out of memory. That seems to be the thing that really nags at Solomon here. It takes you away from memory. It wipes you out of memory. The dead are all forgotten. And that's the problem Solomon can't stand. We need to be known. We need to be remembered. And we think that, that our knowing, our wisdom, our intellect, our, our memory, that's the real great and glorious thing that we're going to beef up in this life. But the thing we really need is not just to know, it's to be known. It's to, to be remembered. And this need is fundamental to our humanity. This is the source of many a midlife crisis, the source of existential dread when you're facing the problem of your mortality. In this world, we are faced with the unbearable reality that we're all going to die and be forgotten. And if that is true, then what good is life? What's the point of anything? We feel there has to be more to life than death. We feel that way very strongly. There has to be more, more to life than death. But if death is the only punctuation mark, like a period, at the end of the short sentence of our lives, then Nietzsche's probably right. There's one of the quotes there in the bulletin. The living is a species of the dead. The living is just a species of the dead. If finally death erases life, even from memory, then death defines life. If death erases life, then death defines life. And that fundamental need that we have to be known and to be remembered, it will only be frustrated in the most maddening way. So Solomon says, I hated life. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was evil to me for all its vapor and hurting wind. If life is just this impossible attempt to circumvent death, to preserve life and memory from the spoiling that death brings... Such life is to be hated. If that's what life is, if death defines life, such life is to be hated. Um, that's terrible. And this is about as low as anyone can get. This is beyond cynical. This is beyond just bitterness. This is despair. His existential crisis, his utter frustration with the futility of a life that can never mean anything because of death, it causes him to hate life. And this is at least borderline suicidal. Uh, even if later in the book Ecclesiastes says it's better to live than to die, he says that in the same way he says, yeah, it's better to be wise than to be a fool. It's better than, to live than to die. Right? And that's the heart of the crisis. He thinks it's obvious that life should be better than death. But he can't find any reason for it. It, it should be obvious that life is better than death. He can't find any reason that life would be worth living. Not in this world. So Voltaire, another one of those quotes, another philosopher, thinks along similar terms. I hate life, yet I'm afraid to die. Can you identify with that level of crisis? Right now is the time to be honest. You don't need to be afraid to admit it to yourself or to others or to God. Why would you be afraid of saying, yeah, I struggle like this? 
Solomon had a greater existential crisis than anyone, and he was not afraid to admit it. He thought it would be good, maybe helpful, to talk about it. So look, no one should be surprised that people would experience such despair as this. No one should be surprised, even at thoughts of suicide. I hate life. Right? These thoughts are common. These thoughts are normal for people like us in a world like that, this. The scriptures are not afraid to be honest about that, which means ultimately, and most importantly, that God's not afraid to be honest about this kind of thing. God knows the level of our despair. He knows how much it's possible to hate a life that is defined by death. So now's the time to just bring your despair to him. Set aside everything you think you know in your great wisdom and simply just let your despair drive you to ask him for help. And here's the help that he gives us. When we consider our mortality, when we face the reality that we're we're all going to die, I'm going to die, and I'll be forgotten, and we despair of life, there's this clue about it in our passage that we can follow. We can trace it out in the wider scope of the scriptures. Solomon laments in verse 16 that there's no eternal remembrance. That's such an interesting phrase. Eternal remembrance. The the Hebrew word for remembrance, uh, again, could also be translated memorial. Uh, It's a word that is used frequently of religious festivals um, like Passover or other feast days that God says, do this as as a memorial, right? Do this on a regular basis so that you can remember something. It's a religious ritual kind of a thing. Or uh, of the stones that are engraved with the names of God's people, they're worn by the high priest when he enters into God's presence. They're worn, uh, sort of representing the people, they're worn for remembrance. It's the same word, right? So these memorials, they're things, they're activities that God calls us to participate in to, to reassure us that he remembers us. that he remembers the promises that he's made to his people. I mean, is it really true that our death means that there's no eternal remembrance of us? I mean, maybe you'd never guess it just looking around at this world with these eyes, but the special revelation of God, the Holy Scriptures, the gospel of Jesus Christ says there actually is an eternal remembrance. You are known you are remembered that, that will never fade in eternity and death can't strip it away because God is the one who knows you. The eternal God is the one who remembers you. God sent his son into the world to be this eternal remembrance that we need. Right? As Solomon is the king who represented us, who went before us in this existential crisis, Jesus is the greater king who has represented us before God. The Son of God joined himself to us, taking on our humanity, and in solidarity with us, as one of us, as our representative, Jesus lived life in this world that's filled with death and despair. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus even went to the grave. He went to the place where the scriptures make it clear, this is the place where the dead go to be forgotten. And Jesus went there, and he went there to be with us, even in that place. He met us in the very place where all the lights had gone out, every light except himself. 
his presence. He met us for fellowship in the impossible place where people are no longer known and no longer remembered. But in his going there, he ensured that we would always be remembered. Because in continuing and everlasting union with us, with his people, Jesus was raised from the dead and he was taken up into glory where the man will never be forgotten. God sees him always. And in him, God sees us. Jesus is our eternal remembrance. Jesus is our memorial who stands before God forever in heaven. Can God look at his beloved son who is united to our humanity and forget us? Could God look at himself and forget us when we're flesh of his own flesh now? As long as God remembers his son, the promise is true that he remembers us. And he will remember us. What can the man do who comes before the king? Only what's already been done. So we'll sing together in a few minutes. The king lives. Jesus lives. And so shall I. Jesus, our king, our representative, has gone before us in death. He's gone before us in resurrection. He's gone before us into glory. And our hearts can sing, Jesus is remembered by God forever. And so am I. And that's your only hope in the face of existential dread. God's remembrance of us in Jesus Christ is the only answer to our most fundamental need of being known and being remembered. It doesn't depend so much on our wisdom or our understanding or our remembrance of him. It depends entirely on his gracious remembrance of us. This is the only thing that can allow you to take a hard look at this life and not conclude that this life is ultimately defined by death, and therefore this life is to be hated for its futility. Imagine the despair of the thief on the cross, as Holly read in our gospel reading. He's next to Jesus. This guy ruined his life. His, His life amounted to nothing, and that reality has never been starker than that very moment when he's in the middle of his own death, when his terrible, pointless life would come to a meaningless end, and he said the one thing that we all need to say to Jesus, remember me. And because Jesus is the God who remembers, come in the flesh for our salvation, even though he too was in the middle of his own death, he reassured the nameless criminal, of course I'll remember you. Today, I say to you, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Death wouldn't define this man's existence, and it won't define ours. Because by the grace of God, Jesus defines our existence. And in spite of ourselves, he remembers us, and that changes everything. We're free to be wise rather than to be foolish, because that's better. But we don't need to lean on our own understanding. We don't need to lean on our own wisdom we don't, uh, in order to have our best shot at a good life that's worth living. We don't need to lean on our own understanding or wisdom to feel confident to face whatever might come our way in life. It's okay to fail because you weren't smart enough. You didn't foresee all, everything. We don't need to lean on our own understanding to gain a sense of security about the future or to establish our identity or to make a lasting name for ourselves. 
if it's true that the same event happens to all of us, whether we're wise or foolish, then in Christ, it's even more true that the same salvation overtakes us, whether we're wise, prudent, rational, thoughtful people, or dim, dependent, disabled, demented people. We're all dependent on God's eternal remembrance, and that's the good news about Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, your memory is perfect, and you remember us forever. And this is not some wishful thinking. This is revealed in the gospel. Help us to live in the reassurance that even though we forget you, you will never forget us. Help us to live free of the dread that our lives are defined by death. Help us to love the life that's found in Jesus, who is our eternal memorial in your presence. Help us when we despair, just to bring our despair to you. Help us because you love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.